In the World Service of the BBC, this is Max Pearson with NewsHour. Sixty minutes of news, analysis and comment from around the world. Hello, the headlines today. Police in India say a group of Muslim militants have been killed during a big security operation which followed a series of bomb explosions in the city of Quimbatore. We'll be examining the implications of the bombings as India gets ready to vote. And I'm George Arney in Delhi, where news of the bombings has added to tensions in advance of the election starting tomorrow. I've been touring the capital's old city to find out what Muslims feel about the prospects of a victory by the Hindu nationalist BJP. Elsewhere, UN weapons experts have arrived in Baghdad to try to resolve the deadlock over the inspection of Iraqi presidential sites. We'll be hearing live from Baghdad. Also today, picking up the pieces after the battle for Freetown, Sierra Leone. To drive through Freetown, it's quite shocking. Very depressing. Uh, I'm sure it must have been terror for the people who lived in town to be shelled like that. So in the hospital they received a lot of people very seriously injured by the shrapnel. And why the Beatles don't want their songs to be used to promote Beatles. The news today is read by Jerry Smith. Police in India say six suspected Muslim militants in the southern city of Coimbatore were blown up by their own explosives during a security raid early on Sunday. The raid was part of an extensive security operation which followed a number of bomb blasts in the city on Saturday when more than 40 people were killed. The attacks were apparently timed to coincide with a general election rally by the Hindu Nationalist Party, the BJP. Mike Waldridge reports. The carnage in Coimbatore, now followed by these further deaths as the police seek to track down suspects, has shaken India on the eve of the first round of polling. The Prime Minister, Inda Kumar Gujral, said anti-national elements were out to disrupt the election process and India's unity. It was only because of the late arrival of the BJP president in Coimbatore that his election rally hadn't begun by the time the blasts were rocking the textile city of more than one million people. There have since been around 20 arrests in the state capital, Madras. Those picked up include leaders of three Islamic fundamentalist groups. The police say they also seized homemade bombs and detonators in raids. United Nations weapons experts sent by the Secretary-General Kofi Annan to define what the Iraqis describe as presidential sites have arrived in Baghdad. The sites are at the centre of the present crisis, which has led to the threat of military action against Iraq. The Security Council maintains they should be open to full inspection, while the Iraqis say that such a move would be an affront to national sovereignty. From Baghdad, here's George Alagaya. The survey team's job will be to define exactly what areas can be described as a presidential site. Some of these sites are vast compounds containing a number of buildings. America and Britain are unlikely to agree to a special regime of inspection for these sites, as the Iraqi government wants, without ensuring that new buildings cannot at some later stage be added to the list. Once the sites are clearly earmarked, America in particular will have to accept that inspections over a limited period of time and under the supervision of the Security Council as a whole will be enough to do the job the arms inspectors have been given. If Kofi Annan came to Baghdad, the kind of deal he might bring is some form of special treatment for eight presidential sites in return for unconditional, unfettered access to all other areas that the UN inspection teams might want to visit. Troops and police are on high alert in several regions of Indonesia following two days of rioting and looting over steep rises in food prices. 
In the worst unrest to hit the country since the start of the economic crisis, troops shot dead at least four people and Muslim rioters destroyed many shops owned by the ethnic Chinese minority. The head of one of Indonesia's largest Muslim organizations said any candidate for president who is incapable of ending corruption should step aside, a remark seen as a clear reference to President Suharto. A second round of the presidential election in Cyprus is taking place today, a poll in which only the Greek Cypriot community is participating. The contest is between the two front-runners from last week's poll, the incumbent, Glavklos Karithis, and a former foreign minister, Yorios Iakovou. The BBC correspondent in Nicosia says the outcome is expected to be close, although Mr Karithis is being tipped to win. The British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, has attacked the commercialisation of the memory of Diana, Princess of Wales, who was killed in a car crash in Paris last year. A spokesman for the Prime Minister said he took a poor view of some of the aspects of the industry that has grown up since her death. Mr Blair's views have been endorsed by his predecessor, John Major, who acts as financial guardian to the late Princess's two sons. Alistair Jackson reports. Tony Blair's office has refused to comment on which particular products his comments are directed at. It's also understood Princes William and Harry are concerned by some of the items now available. Souvenir ashtrays have been sold in London, and a computer game which simulates the crash in which the princess was killed is reportedly available on the internet. Mr Blair's description of the commercialisation being inappropriate and tacky isn't thought likely to lead to any items being banned. A ship carrying food and medical supplies is due in the Sierra Leonean capital Freetown today following the city's capture last week by the Nigerian-led West African intervention force ECOMOG. Aid agencies estimate that half a million people face serious food shortages. One agency told the BBC that food markets were still closed and many displaced people had lost all their possessions. BBC World Service. Now back to Max Pearson. Thanks, Jerry. What's always referred to as the world's largest democracy, India, is getting ready to vote in a general election. Polls open in a little over 12 hours from now. But the atmosphere across the vast country has been soured by the bomb attacks in the southern state of Tamil Nadu. The greatest fear is of an outbreak of intercommunal violence. George Arney is in Delhi for News Hour, and he joins us now. George. Thank you, Max. It's a funny old election that gets underway here tomorrow. Less than two years after India last went to the polls, there's a mood of indifference, even of cynicism, and with good reason. Before the election was reluctantly called by the president, there was a hung parliament. No party had an overall majority. Exactly the same result looks likely to be the outcome again after this whole lengthy and costly election process is done with. No real issues have been thrown up by the campaign either. The only excitement came when Sonia Gandhi, the reclusive Italian-born widow of the late Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi, entered the election fray on behalf of her husband's moribund Congress party. And then came yesterday's shocking events, a series of bomb blasts in the southern textile town of Coimbatore, which killed some 40 people and injured many more. To find out the latest from there, I spoke a short time ago to the chairman of the Coimbatore Chambers of Commerce, K.G. Balakrishnan. Peace is uh, trying to come to Coimbatore. Normalcy is trying to come to Coimbatore. Is there still a curfew and is there any further there sign of trouble? There is a curfew, yes. There is a section of 144 where not more than 4% uh, cannot uh, assemble one place. 
and uh, there's also an order of uh, shoot at sight and the police have been given enormous powers so that they don't consult any politicians anymore to shoot so the streets of Coimbatore are still completely deserted are they mostly now I gather that you have been to the hospital to see some of the victims of these bomb blasts yes from since yesterday afternoon uh, around 430 I've been uh, in our hospital and we have been uh, uh, receiving patients, uh, more than 200 patients we received. About 100 of them we have uh, treated as outpatient uh, patients. And about 100 uh, we admitted, a few of them died. And uh, still uh, there are around uh, 56 uh, inpatients in our hospital. And uh, in other uh, private hospitals also uh, there are patients. Now, are we any closer to finding out who was responsible for this series of bomb blasts? The government, I know, has banned two Muslim militant groups. Is it thought that they were behind the blasts? According to the police, the terrorist uh, Muslim groups. And what do you think? Uh, that's what I also agree, I think so. K.G. Balakrishnan, chairman of the Coimbatore Chamber of Commerce. Well, with me now is the BBC's Delhi correspondent, Daniel Lack. Dan, if it was Muslim fundamentalists responsible for these blasts, what would they have been hoping to achieve? Well, I'm glad you said if it was, because it's by no means clear just yet if it were. The police have said so. But in prior attacks, particular groups the police are talking about have left leaflets lying around and claimed responsibility. This hasn't happened this time. But what they were up to before was to try and disrupt things in Tamil Nadu. It was a group with a very odd anarchic agenda trying to really push a Muslim fundamentalist agenda. They came back from the Gulf with this agenda in mind. This time people are saying it's aimed at the BJP stopping them in Tamil Nadu. It remains to be seen. Apart from the raising of tensions generally between Hindus and Muslims, does it have any uh, wider repercussions on the start of polling for the general elections tomorrow? Well, I suppose from the Election Commission's point of view, fortunately, Coimbatore doesn't, Coimbatore doesn't vote uh, until next week. So that's a good thing as far as the Election Commission is concerned. But there's been no report anywhere in the country, except for one or two districts of Tamil Nadu, of tensions being raised. And, and frankly, I think that if it passes off uh, as the only incident in this run-up to the polling, we've had a fairly uneventful and peaceful campaign, except for that one tragic event. But with the blame pinned by the authorities on Muslim fundamentalists, is that going to benefit the BJP? BJP certainly hopes so. Mr. Advani, the BJP president, has been saying that uh, this is uh, aimed directly at him. It's an attack they've been talking about for more than a week now. But uh, everything's uncertain about this election, so the BJP will have to wait and see like the rest of us. Thanks, Dan. Well, relations between Hindus and Muslims were already one of the great unspoken themes of this campaign. The steady rise over the past decade of the BJP, which is tipped to end up as the largest single party in Parliament at the end of these polls, has made many Muslims apprehensive, as I found earlier today when I went on a tour of Delhi's Muslim-dominated Old City. It's just before six in the morning and a fresh breeze is blowing through the heart of the old city. In the slums around the great Jama Masjid, India's biggest and most beautiful mosque, people are stirring. Tea is being made. Bicycle rickshaw wallers are waiting around hopefully for an early fare. As the azan sounds from the towering minarets of the mosque for the first prayer of the day, Muslim residents of the old city begin to trickle up the red sandstone steps of the mosque huddled in shawls and blankets against the chill wind with prayer caps on their heads they climb the steps past beggar women shrouded in black 
before taking off their sandals and passing through the carved wooden gates into the great courtyard of the Jama Masjid. After early morning prayers, with the darkness still clinging to the narrow streets around the Jama Masjid, what could be more welcome than a cup of tea at a roadside tea stall? You've come from Namaz? Yes, yes. Just now. Do you go to do you go for Namaz every day? Yeah. Every day. And five times a day. Have you been before to, to the Jama yeah. Masjid? Yeah, I've been before and Juman Namaz. Juman Namaz on Friday. That's the Friday prayers. Yes. There are more people there on yeah, Friday. Yeah. We have got congregation of about thousands of people there. This is a rather run-down area. The Jama Masjid is very beautiful, but all around uh, very slum areas. Slum area, but people are happy here. They are poor, but they are happy. Noise, pandemonium, chaos. If Indians want to describe a scene like that, they say it's a fish market. And these days, people say Parliament has become even worse than a fish market. So we've come just a few hundred yards down the road from the Jama Masjid, through a series of dank and smelly alleyways, to Delhi's biggest fish market. Fish market! Hello! What's happening here? Here, here, selling fish. Selling fish, but yes. we've, you've got buckets full of fish no, here. No, you're weighing... With, you're, with weight, not worth it. With weight. You're weighing them up. And then you're... Who, kgs. who is buying now? Who is buying? Shopkeepers? Yeah, yeah, shopkeepers, retail shopkeepers. So this is the early morning trade? Early morning, the 5th AM. That's the sound of uh, fish being thrown into buckets by hordes of uh, men here. They're carrying uh, great big loads of fish around on their heads. They're throwing them into huge great pans to be weighed. And all over the floor there are piles and piles of fish. The squalor of the fish market is much of a muchness with the rest of the walled city. Dingy, smelly and run down. And yet when it was built in the early 17th century, the old city was one of the marvels of the world. Travellers spoke about a city of mansions, palaces and orchards. One even likened it to the Garden of Eden. The man who built it was Emperor Shah Jahan, and in olden times, the old city was called Shah Jahanabad after him. Someone who's trying to restore something of the atmosphere of that golden time is Naved Khan. The builder of the city of Shah Jahanabad is the one who built the famous Taj Mahal. Should be very beautiful, you can imagine. Full of palaces and orchards. There were havelis and uh, orchards. He was very much uh, fond of... Uh, you see, he had a sense, a uh, high taste of uh, the buildings and, you know, beauty. Beauty. So it was, of course, a very beautiful city. You get some small idea of how the old city used to be when you visit the mansion house of Mazro Ahmed Khan. His family came to India 500 years ago with the first Mughal emperor, Baba. For generations, his ancestors were wealthy physicians to the imperial family. But now most of his relatives are living in Pakistan. He sits alone in a sitting room which speaks of faded glories, portraits of illustrious forebears on the peeling walls. 
and he mulls over days gone by. You know, this house been uh, used by us and most of the things that you find here is what it used to be in my early days. This used to be a very, uh, almost like a, a great big mansion. It was a big, not only a mansion, it was a, a small uh, noble house. And my ancestors were nobles at the time of uh, Mughal uh, kings and after them also. Until 47, this family had a great uh, status. At that time, we used to have 13 cars, where hardly any people used to have car in, in Delhi. So are you concerned now about the prospect of a BJP government coming in? Do you think that Muslims will fare worse under a BJP government? We are certain that they are going to enforce Hindutva over us. They are going to change Muslim personal law. And they are going to rule in a very, uh, you know, theoretic way on, the, uh, on, on all minorities. May it be the Muslims or the Christians and all, this is what they have been doing. Well, not all Muslims are opposed to the BJP. And we've come to a corner of the old city now. I'm, uh, I'm meeting Abdul Sattar. Now, you're campaigning yes. for the BJP. Yes. Why is that? Uh, I feel that the BJP is going to be in tight path is going to be right path on the right path yes for the benefit of muslim also why do you feel that because a lot of muslims seem to feel that it will go against they muslim are, they are fundamentalist and under the pressure of some muslim leader, leaders but most muslims believe that the bjp would make muslims into second class citizens no 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 they are not they feel that uh, upliftment of the muslims is necessary for the benefit of the country BJP has been very active in the old city during this election campaign. Its cavalcades have passed through the narrow alleyways blaring out their message and the walls are covered in BJP posters written in Urdu, the Muslim language. In the end, this election boils down to a clear choice for India's 600 million voters. A leap into the unknown with the BJP or a return to the fold of the Congress party now represented by the last of the old Congress dynasty, Sonia Gandhi. Swapandas Gupta is deputy editor of the prestigious weekly India Today. I think for the first time after many years, we've, the Indian electorate is presented with two, two clear choices. One is between a party which believes that it's time to make a decisive break with the past and move on to new directions, however controversial that may be. And on the other hand, you have Sonia Gandhi's very strident and colourful campaign which suggests that Indians should ultimately repose faith in a tried and tested family of familiar figures who are there and that family can continue in a sort of monarchical democracy. So which of those two choices, the fresh start under the BJP or the recourse to the old Nehru Gandhi family, which of them do you think is more attractive to the Indian voter? Ultimately we'll know on March the 2nd when the boxes are open, but at present if the opinion polls are any indication, it seems that the Indian electorate is slightly confused. There's been a substantial swing to the BJP, but the swing doesn't seem to be adequate enough for them to go past the halfway mark in Parliament. On the other hand, the Congress, which was in very steep and terminal decline, has recovered something, squeezing out 
the third parties. So it's a very clear choice between the two. Ultimately, I still feel that we will get a verdict. It may be a slender majority, but I think ultimately the Indian voters are going to give a verdict one way or the other. Now, we're here in Old Delhi, where a lot of Muslims live. There's a, a big concentration of Muslims in the old city. Do you think that Muslims in particular, other minorities as well, but especially Muslims, do have some cause to fear the possible advent of a BJP government? Look, there is a loony call in every outfit. The important thing is that I think everybody realizes that India cannot be a theocratic state. India cannot be a Hindu state, an exclusivist Hindu republic. I really, in the long term, cannot see the future for the BJP in terms of a party which is advocating some sort of religious exclusivism. The old city isn't inhabited only by Muslims. In fact, they make up less than 20% of the total population inside the old Mughal walls. The rest are mainly Hindus who live, work and worship cheek by jowl with their Muslim cousins. For the most part, the two communities live peaceably enough side by side. And the BJP promises that if it comes to power, Muslims and Hindus will be treated equally. But those who fear the BJP say its promotion of a single Indian culture really means an exclusively Hindu culture. And that could lead to increased tensions and political polarization between India's two largest religious communities. And that was Georgiani in Delhi. It's nearly 13.22 GMT. In a moment, new fears about another blanket of smog in Southeast Asia. And the Beatles go into battle over Volkswagen's new Beetle car. You're listening to the BBC's World Service. This is Max Pearson with NewsHour. Aid agencies in Freetown, Sierra Leone, are hoping to start distributing the first large-scale food and medical supplies today following the capture of the city by Nigerian-led troops. A relief ship is due to dock shortly. An estimated half a million people are in need after the battles to drive out Major Johnny Paul Karoma's military regime. Nigerian troops are continuing to search for supporters of the defeated military government. Martha Kerry is with Médecins Sans Frontières in Freetown. I asked her about the most pressing needs. The most urgently needed items is uh, definitely food. At the moment, MSF, we do have one medical store that is still intact following the problems in the capital city. We have been able to supply the hospital up to now. We are expecting also um, some more urgently needed medical supplies to be coming in the next few days. But food is really a very, very uh, big, big need. How is the lack of food manifesting itself amongst the people of Freetown? There are several different problems. First of all, because of the problems of security in town, there has not been uh, the possibility for people to open markets, to be selling food in the streets as is normally done. People who were displaced because of the fighting in the capital obviously had to leave behind their foodstuffs and uh, personal items in their homes. Many people lost everything. And also, economically, many people do not have jobs, and many people, again, have lost everything. So even if food is available in the market, it is not possible for most people to buy it. Uh, on the medical side, uh, what injuries have there been as a result of the fighting? Do you have figures for casualties and injured? 
there has been, most of the injuries have been uh, shrapnel and wounds due to the heavy shelling that has been in town. In the center of town, there was very heavy shelling in most of the the most heavily populated part of town. To drive through Freetown, it's quite shocking, very depressing. Uh, I'm sure it must have been terror for the people who lived in town to be shelled like that. So in the hospital, they received a lot of people very seriously injured by the shrapnel. But we don't have um, a death toll for the fighting of the past week yet. Because of the security problems and the inaccessibility for the humanitarian organizations in town during the fighting of the past week, many of the population uh, just buried dead as quickly as they could. We understand that some of the cemeteries are completely full, but up to now we have not been able to collect any figures. Uh, and how would you assess the attitude of the people of Freetown towards what has happened? Is there... Uh, relief or anger at what the Nigerians have done? I think at the moment now it's very safe to say that the atmosphere in Freetown is one of jubilation and relief. People are very, very happy that the fighting is over. Of course, during the fighting, as I said, um, when you see the situation of town, it must have been very, very horrible for most of the town population. And so now to have the streets quiet is a great relief for the population of Freetown. How, though, will the people react when they hear that uh, Major Johnny Paul Karoma has spoken to the BBC and said that he will fight on? I think that they will not be very happy. Uh, I'm sure that the population of Sierra Leone is tired of war. Martha Carey of Médecins Sans Frontières, speaking from Freetown. There are growing fears in Southeast Asia of another wave of the airborne pollution which blanketed much of the region last year. Today, Malaysia called on the Indonesian government to take immediate steps to douse new fires raging out of control in Borneo. Forestry officials in Indonesia say there are now hundreds of forest fires on the island. Most are in the province of East Kalimantan, and there are growing fears that the situation is beyond human control. Our correspondent Simon Ingram reports from Kalimantan. In the quiet of a Borneo evening, only the crackle of flames can be heard. This fire is consuming a banana plantation on the coast road to Samarinda, provincial capital of East Kalimantan. It's one of hundreds burning out of control across this gigantic island. Using nothing more than a palm frond, the plantation owner, Batua, attempts the hopeless task of extinguishing the flames. My crops are all gone, he says. The fires left me with nothing to support my wife and children with. Further north, the fires are bigger and more dangerous still, edging ever closer to the small settlements beside the main road. Well, this is no smouldering brush fire. This is more like an inferno. A line of flame stretching perhaps 50, 60 meters across the field right in front of me. The wind coming off the sea is whipping up the flames high into the sky, and there's just no telling how far it'll go. Drought has gripped East Kalimantan since May last year. The vegetation has become so parched that when the plantation owners and logging companies lit the fires they've always used to clear land with, it was inevitable that many would go out of control. Now the acute water shortage is hurting the towns as well. Here in Samarinda, 
portable pumps are being used to suck the soiled water of the river Mahakam into big oil drums. The water's then trucked away and sold to households who've had no tap water since the mains ran dry last week. Well, yeah, kalau jualan air ini agak lumayan lah. Pendapatan ya sampai 50.000, kadang-kadang sampai 40.000. Kalau hari-hari biasa lo enggak ada jualan air tuh pendapatan coba tiga He says this is a good business by selling a river water. It's about uh, they get 50,000 or 40,000 per day and they can buy food with this money. Here now the actual temperature, 28 degrees Celsius. And you can see the, the hot spots now. Surrounded by the hum of computer equipment, Anya Hoffman pours over the latest satellite images of the Borneo fires. The German-funded research group she works for monitors the forests on behalf of the Indonesian government. The group's director, Ludwig Schindler, says the fires are now so big and so widespread that a return to the haze conditions, which blighted much of Southeast Asia last year, is very much on the cards. The situation in East Kalimantan is already escalating and fires are picking up in South Kalimantan, Central Kalimantan. And so, given a, a three months, three more months of drought over Indonesia, we can easily get a situation that is similar to this one last year or even worse. Belatedly, the provincial authorities are calling to account the companies on whose land the fires are raging. But with the conflagration effectively beyond human control, any punitive action will be too late to save much of Borneo's precious forests and vegetation. Simon Ingram reporting. Now, here's an advertising executive's dream, a Beatles song to promote a Beatle car. Baby, you can drive my car. Yes, I'm gonna be a star. The German carmaker Volkswagen is hoping to launch its new 1990s version of the Beatle with a promotional campaign built around a number of famous Beatles songs. The surviving members of the Beatles, however, do not want their songs used for advertising. But their problem is that the rights to the back catalogue of their songs were bought some years ago by the Sony Corporation and Michael Jackson. And with VW reportedly offering $10 million, it's thought they may well sell. The Beatles' spokesman is Jeff Baker. I asked him about their objections. Well, we object to any use of any Beatles songs for advertising simply because the Beatles feel that the use of Beatles songs in advertising cheapens the songs. And not only do the Beatles feel that, but I also know that the fans feel that, that, you know, when these songs were written, it wasn't with the idea of cheaply plugging, or expensively in this case, plugging some product. But it appears that there's uh, not much that the Beatles can do about this, the, uh, the back catalogue being owned or part-owned by Michael Jackson. That's true. Um, Sony and, and Michael Jackson own the catalogue, but... but there is a, there's something that the Beatles can do. I mean, first of all, there's no way whatsoever could could VW or anyone use Beatles songs as sung as sung by the Beatles because that could imply that the Beatles 
were, well, I don't know, supporting this advertising if it actually happens, and uh, the Beatles are not supporting it in any way, shape, or form. Second thing that they could do, and again we would stop them, is to use sound-alike bands. They wouldn't be able to do that. The only way they would be able to do it legally would be, uh, because the Beatles don't own their own some song publishing, that they could get somebody else who sang completely unlike the Beatles to, to, to perform these songs and then do that. But the, the problem they're going to find, they or anybody is going to find, but particularly in this case, because I think it's getting a bit heated, is from my investigations of fans in America and in, and in the UK, is that it could be a backlash and the fans could say, fine, OK, you go ahead with this, you desecrate the songs, we won't buy your cars. It, couldn't it also be argued, though, that... Um although the Beatles wouldn't actually be heard uh, in these advertisements if they, if they go ahead, that using Beatles' back catalogue songs to advertise goods in the late 1990s might actually put the Beatles back in people's minds, whereas they've uh, possibly slipped out of them to a, a degree in the last couple of decades. No, that's not really true at all, Max, because um, the Beatles anthology proved that the Beatles are actually in the forefront of, uh, forefront of a lot of people's minds, certainly in the forefront of the music industry. That was mind. a recent album which uh, sold very well, of, uh, of old well, Beatles it songs. A, it was the album that sold in, to in, in excess of 42 million albums during, during between 95 and uh, November 95 and November 96, during which year the Beatles outsold every other band on the planet. I mean, the Beatles are, if you talk to Noel Gallagher, you talk to, well, any, any act whatsoever, the Beatles are still the benchmark for, for every band. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? That was Jeff Baker, the spokesman for the Beatles. It's just after 13.33 GMT. Still to come, a big birthday party in North Korea. But what is there to celebrate? And from Burma, 50 years of struggle for Korean nationalism. When I look back, I feel a tremendous sense of pride. But I just hope the younger generation don't have to suffer like we have and that there will finally be peace. You're listening to the BBC's World Service. This is Max Pearson with NewsHour. We'll have a summary of the latest world news now from Jerry Smith. Indian police say that six suspected Muslim militants were blown up by their own explosives during a security raid in the city of Coimbatore early on Sunday. The raid followed the deaths of around 40 people in a series of bomb attacks in the city. Troops and police are on alert in several regions of Indonesia following two days of rioting and looting sparked by steep increases in food prices. At least five people were killed. Three senior American clerics visiting China have given the authorities a list of religious believers who are reported to be in jail and have asked about their welfare and the charges against them. Greek Cypriots are voting in the second round of elections to choose a new president. Both of the remaining candidates say they're committed to finding a solution to the division of the island. A ship carrying relief supplies is due in the capital of Sierra Leone, where recent fighting has left an estimated half a million people short of food. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations has urged the Cambodian government to ensure that the overthrown first prime minister, Prince Norodom Ranarit, is allowed to take part in general elections in July. The British Prime Minister Tony Blair has attacked the commercialisation of the memory of Diana, Princess of Wales. His spokesman said he viewed some souvenirs and other products as inappropriate and in poor taste. And that's the summary.
Thanks, Jerry. Diplomatic channels are still being pursued in the attempt to avert an American-led military strike against Iraq. Today, new UN weapons specialists have arrived in Baghdad to examine what the Iraqis describe as presidential sites. The whole crisis is over Iraq's refusal to comply with UN resolutions demanding unrestricted access to sites in Iraq. On the line now from Baghdad is our correspondent, George Alagaya. George, how much of a breakthrough is this, the arrival of these uh, new weapons specialists? Well, Max, I'm not even sure that we can describe them as weapons specialists. I think uh, the official term is cartographers, whatever that means. I mean, essentially, as far as I can judge it, what these two men are going to do is to define what constitutes a presidential site. Uh, I mean, as you know, some of these places are huge compounds with, with a vast array of outbuildings and sheds and so on. And I think they're going to simply get together a list and decide with the Iraqis what is a presidential site and what isn't. And once that list is, is, is decided upon, then that will be the basis on, on which uh, Kofi Annan and his colleagues in the Security Council will decide when they have to decide whether there's going to be a special regime for, for presidential sites. So that's all they're doing. I don't think it's part of the negotiating uh, process proper. But, but are they going to be working uh, with, alongside, or completely separate to the, uh, what was supposed to be, the proper weapons, UN weapons inspection teams? No, these, I, th I think this is a separate process entirely. Um, I think if it turns out that they can go back and they can agree with the Iraqis that of these eight presidential sites, this much can be, can be left alone, this much has to be inspected, and this much has to be inspected with special conditions. Once that decided that, the, the, the permanent five members of the Security Council have to agree that, Kofi Annan, if he comes to Baghdad, will, will offer it up to the Iraqis if they accept. Then you will see UN weapons inspectors um, coming in and, and doing the actual inspection. But what's going on now, I think, is, a, is, is a quite a separate process. But the fact that we've got different people going into Iraq to uh, do preliminary work concerning inspections, does that indicate to you the possibility of the beginning of a, of a compromise whereby of course the Iraqis were complaining about the composition of the teams beforehand accusing the Americans of being spies and so forth we might get other people in and both sides might be able to withdraw from this with some honor yeah I mean one one doesn't want to kind of jump the gun if you pardon the expression but but yes I think we that the, the beginnings of a deal are in sight but I really have to say it is very much a beginnings it was interesting that earlier in the week the British Foreign Office hinted that it might accept some kind of special regime of inspections for these presiden presidential sites. Because the Iraqis have always said, look, these are p places where the president himself uh, resides from time to time, and they simply weren't going to have uh, some kind of young 30-something inspector knock on the door and say, look, I want to have an inspection. Um, now, that's what they've maintained, and it looks as if there's been some kind of a shift in London. Um, not at all clear that the Americans go along with that. But yes, it's the beginnings of a deal, I think, in the making. George Alagaya, thank you. Speaking live from Baghdad. The South American Republic of Paraguay is in a state of political crisis. Presidential elections are due in three months' time, but the candidate of the governing Colorado party, Lino Oviedo, is currently in prison, and no one knows whether he will be allowed to stand. Mr. Oviedo, who is the former commander of the Paraguayan army, is alleged to have tried to launch a military coup in 1996. However, his supporters say he is being persecuted by the president, Juan Carlos Wasmosi. Other Latin American countries are becoming concerned about a possible threat to democracy. Our correspondent Stephen Speech has been to Paraguay and sent this report.
Long live the Colorado party. Lino Oviedo for president. As far as his followers are concerned, Mr. Oviedo is already on the campaign trail. And there's evidence to suggest that the former general has considerable support among ordinary people. This man is a bread seller on the streets of the capital Asuncion. Most politicians here don't keep their promises, he says, but some of Oviedo's proposals are really excellent. So what's the secret of his success? Carlos Martini is one of Paraguay's foremost political commentators. Oviedo has developed a populist messianic style which appeals to people who are worried about unemployment, corruption and law and order. And he's also got plenty of money, which has helped him to spread his message throughout the country. But there's just one problem. At the moment, Mr. Oviedo is in prison, which makes campaigning a bit difficult. And it's here, in a quiet suburb of the capital Asuncion, that Lino Oviedo is currently being held. It's more than two months since Lino Oviedo was last seen in public, disappearing through those gates, waving his fist in the air and surrounded by hundreds of cheering supporters. It's a peaceful scene here, just a few soldiers standing guard outside, looking pretty relaxed. And yet inside that barracks is the man around whom the whole of Paraguayan political life appears to revolve. There are a number of charges against Mr. Oviedo. The most serious is that in April 1996, while he was army commander, he tried to launch a military coup. Miguel Ángel Ramírez is the Paraguayan interior minister. He has no doubt about what happened. President Wasmosi ordered Oviedo to resign, he says. The general refused and instead tried to overthrow the president. That crisis was certainly the severest test for democracy in Paraguay since it emerged from the long dictatorship of General Stroessner. However, Mr. Oviedo's supporters reject the idea that their man was to blame. Alejandro Velázquez is his spokesman. No es verdad. El presidente de la República... It's not true that Oviedo tried to launch a coup. What happened was that President Wasmosi was planning to close down Congress and take unconstitutional powers, like Fujimori in Peru, and General Oviedo refused to go along with it. The Colorado party and the rest of Paraguay have been split down the middle by the Oviedo affair. His supporters say their man is being persecuted and point to the fact that the judicial proceedings against him only started after he had won the Colorado party nomination. Mr. Oviedo certainly has powerful opponents. The military high command, which sided with Mr. Wasmosi in 1996, does not want to see him in the presidential palace. But there are at least some people who do want the elections to go ahead. <laughs> Paraguay's opposition parties are doing well in the polls and have a good chance of defeating the Colorados for the first time in 50 years. The applause at this meeting is for their presidential candidate, Domingo Laino. His wife, Rafaela Guanes de Laino, is an important figure in the campaign. The Colorado party is in the government during 50 years. It is too long. They don't want to lose their business. The business is good, but they have dirty business. And maybe they'll try to broke the institutions. The situation in Paraguay at the moment is extremely unpredictable. Hardly anyone is willing to speculate about what will happen next week, let alone in a few months' time. And the threat to democracy here is being watched anxiously by leaders all over Latin America. Stephen Speech reporting. 
The cult of personality surrounding North Korean leaders is showing no signs of slackening. In the capital, Pyongyang, celebrations to mark Kim Jong-il's birthday are in full swing with parades and firework displays. All this laid on despite the fact that the hardline communist country is still facing severe food shortages. Kim Jong-il became party general secretary in October last year, but despite the fact that it's nearly four years since the death of his father, Kim Il-sung, He's still not formally ascended to the presidency. On the line now is the North Korea specialist Aidan Foster Carter. Uh, Aidan, what should we read into these birthday celebrations, said to be the most lavish since uh, the death of Kim Il-sung? Well, I mean, nothing unusual to have celebrations as such, although the point is well taken that in a country which uh, we keep describing as teetering on the brink of famine and perhaps actually in it, I mean, this might seem in rather bad taste, but, I mean, he was the heir apparent for nearly 20 years, even before uh, actually taking power. His birthday has long been a public holiday, and, of course, since his father died, it's the big one, although it's not a particularly sort of warm weather in, in North Korea at this time of year, not as nice as his father's was in April, but, yes, they always have these festivities. But why has he not yet ascended to the formal presidency? I mean, is his position secure? Well, it's really hard to know. I'm among those who think that it isn't 100% secure, though I may be a minority in this. I mean, he's halfway there in that he took the other sort of communist top job to be Secretary General of the party, though he took it in a rather unorthodox way, sort of by acclamation rather than bureaucratic meetings last October. He does rule very much with the military. I mean, he's normally sort of seen with the military, and, and I, I still tend to the view that uh, he's slightly on sufferance from them. But we may yet see him become president this year. The, the country itself, the uh, North Korea as a state, will be 50 years old uh, in the autumn, and perhaps he'll do it then. But as the food shortages continue, um, I mean, if, they don't, if the situation doesn't improve, from where would a threat to Kim Jong-il come? Well, you would think, I mean, if, if things take their normal course, that people would eventually sort of decide that it wasn't very sensible to starve for a leader who is himself, will he forgive me, you know, not noticeably underfed when one sees him. But it must be said that uh, all the predictions, including by people like me, that uh, the sort of grinding down of the economy and, and then famine on top would lead to sort of collapse politically and socially have not yet been borne out. However, you do wonder if it can actually go on, go on forever. However, I'm a little more optimistic. I think that particularly now we've got a new president coming in in the South next week, Kim Dae-jung, who's going to be much more relaxed towards North Korea. He's already said that people can watch in the South, can watch North Korean television and have a good laugh like the rest of us. Then it'll be very hard for Kim Jong-il and the North Korean leadership not to respond to these sort of more consistent olive branch from the South, and perhaps we might even see them getting together. Aidan Foster-Carter, thanks very much indeed for joining us. It's exactly 13.46 GMT. You're listening to the BBC's World Service. This is Max Pearson with NewsHour. A reminder of the main news today, police in India say a group of Muslim militants have been killed during a big security operation which followed a series of bomb explosions in the city of Coimbatore. And UN weapons experts have arrived in Baghdad to try to resolve the deadlock over the inspection of Iraqi presidential sites. Greek Cypriots are voting in the second and final runoff election for a new president. After a very close first round last week, the incumbent, Glavklos Karidis, and his challenger, George Yakovu, are running neck and neck. Of the five candidates who've had to drop out after the first round, four have endorsed Mr. Kleridis. The other has told his supporters to vote with their conscience. This election comes at an important moment. The international community is committed to resolving the tension on the island, which has been divided since Turkish forces invaded and occupied the northern part in 1974. The importance of the Turkish question was acknowledged today by Mr. Kleridis.
I would like to send a message of friendship to the Turkish Cypriot people of Cyprus. And I want to assure them that we have to work and shall work, all of us, for a just, viable and workable solution of our problems. We must all look to the future and not to the past. Glavklos Kleridis speaking as voters began going to the polls today, but how confident should he be of victory? George Lenitis is a veteran political commentator in Cyprus. I asked him just how close is today's election. It will be a photo finish again today like it was last week. Nobody can tell who the winner will be. And when the final results go on the screen, the difference will be just very, very small. Is that adding to a sense of excitement on the island? Is this election um, galvanizing the people? Indeed, yes. The people have been going to the polls since early this morning. The true winners, if you like, of the elections last week, the socialists, who were supposed to run the show this week, but they have decided to vote according to their conscience. That's because the Socialist Party leader, Mr. Lazaridis, who gained uh, a very respectable 10.6% in the first round, he's told his supporters, uh, well, he hasn't told his supporters which way to vote. Exactly. He told his supporters not to vote in any way, in other words. He's not taking one side or the other, neither did he say that they should throw in a blank, which confuses the issues. And because this is so close, I gather that the two... Uh, contenders still in the race, have been flying in their supporters from various parts around Europe to make sure that they get to Cyprus to vote today. They have been doing that this week and the week before. In my view, a necessary but absolutely silly waste of money because it has been said time and again that a lot of Cypriots do live abroad. London, for example, is the largest Cypriot city with 150, 160,000 Cypriots living and working there. No doubt, the Cypriots who live in the diaspora, they have a say, they have an opinion about what will or might happen to Cyprus. It is correct, but to spend all this money is absolutely stupid waste of money in my view. And also, it is not correct in a sense that the Cypriots in London, in Greece, and in Russia, particularly Moscow, will be able to come here and vote, but what about the Cypriots in Australia, South Africa or the United States? But which, uh, a victory for which one, do you think, would speed the peace process? I couldn't say. It is natural for the Western powers to prefer to work with Mr. Cleridis, although they don't say that, because they have been working with him for many, many years. But others feel that a new phase, a new idea, a new approach might also be useful. The veteran Greek Cypriot political commentator George Lenitis speaking from Cyprus. Today's sports news now, here's Russell Fuller. There's an air of expectancy in Burkina Faso today as the country's footballers try and prove the pundits wrong by qualifying for the quarterfinals of the African Cup of Nations. On Wednesday, crowds took to the streets of Ouagadougou to celebrate the host 2-1 victory over Algeria. That was actually their first ever win in the final stages of the competition. A win over Guinea today will give the West African country a place in the last eight. And according to our reporter Simon Hill, it's going to be a very special day.
Well, I can tell you that uh, as early as this morning, about a thousand people were queuing up outside the 4th of August Stadium, uh, ready to reserve their places. So it's going to be a cracking atmosphere. The game uh, during the week against Algeria was uh, the game of the tournament in terms of atmosphere. Full house, the first time that's happened in this tournament, and they really roared their side onto victory. And uh, I would imagine that they'd lift the roof off the stadium if there was a roof this afternoon, uh, should they beat uh, uh, their opponents and go through to the next phase. It does put a lot of pressure on the players, though, doesn't it? They know that if they don't win and don't go through, then the entire country is going to be in a state of mourning. Yes, and they, they did feel that pressure before uh, the game against Algeria. They held their final training session behind closed doors, um, and they even changed the colours of their shirts on application to CAF because they thought that the white shirts they played in against Cameroon were unlucky. So they got special dispensation to change to red. It seems to have done the trick. So maybe that win will just take a little bit of the pressure off them, but this really is the biggest game in their history. And uh, if they win it, well, I just can't imagine what the scenes in Ouagadougou are going to be like tonight. And that was Simon Hill reporting. The weather continues to play havoc with the skiing events at the Winter Olympics in Nagano. More than 15 centimetres of fresh snow fell on Sunday and heavy fog shrouded the top of Mount Karamatsu. It means five of the eight days of competition have now been wiped out by snow, rain, wind and fog and there's a distinct possibility that for the first time in Olympic history the programme won't be completed on time. And finally in cricket, the South African bowler Pat Simcox has scored a century and shared in a world record ninth wicket stand in the first test against Pakistan in Johannesburg. And if you're thinking bowlers don't often score 100, you'd be right. It's only the third time in test history that a number 10 batsman has reached three figures. And the last time was way back in 1902. Simcox put on 195 runs with Mark Boucher, as South Africa made 364 in their first innings. A short while ago, Pakistan in a bit of trouble in reply, 91 for four. Thanks, Russell. Burma's ethnic Karen community has been celebrating the 50th anniversary of the start of its struggle for self-rule. In recent decades, the army of the Karen National Union has been locked in a bitter guerrilla war with Burma's military government. Our correspondent Enver Solomon was given rare access to attend the 50th anniversary celebrations in the jungles of eastern Burma. He reports now on how one of the world's oldest ethnic rebel groups is struggling to survive. <laughs> With great smiles on their faces, a group of young men and women perform their traditional Karen dance. The early morning mist swirls above their heads as they gracefully sway from side to side. Had all together watching intently are small crowds of villagers and young Karen soldiers. It's a modest celebration for a movement which after 50 years of battling for independence remains fiercely proud of its culture and identity. A group of young soldiers cheer for the dancers. They're the new generation of Karen fighters who'll take their father's place in the punishing guerrilla war against the Burmese military. 65-year-old Captain Ako, who now spends his time training the army's new volunteers, admits that the last 50 years have taken their toll. When I look back, I feel a tremendous sense of pride. But I just hope the younger generation don't have to suffer like we have and that they'll finally be peace. 
but the prospect of peace is still a long way off. Last year, a fresh government offensive flushed the Karens out of their strongholds near the Thai border. With the dancing over a small battalion of soldiers parade up and down for the crowd. Their neatly pressed uniforms give the impression of a well-organized fighting force. But they're now an army in retreat, struggling to defend their territory. They no longer have any permanent bases in the jungle. With their limited firepower and dwindling forces of just a few thousand men, these days the Karens are only able to launch hit-and-run attacks. The job of rallying the troops is left to the father figure of the movement, aging leader General Bomiya. His speech is more like a lecture than a rousing call to arms. The general urges his people to show unity and courage. He insists that the army's guerrilla tactics are working in their favor. My people, my troops are stronger than before. The Karen people inside Burma are oppressed by the government, so they are willing to get guns and fight back. Why should we surrender to evil? The Karen's strong belief in Christianity is also used to boost the movement's morale. Church hymns sung by a village choir ask for God's help. It's this mix of Christianity and nationalism that drives the Karen's fight for self-rule. But they're looking increasingly isolated. All of Burma's other main ethnic groups have made peace with the military government. Chaya Chok Chula Sirovong of Bangkok's Chula Longkorn University says this has been a great blow for the Karens. When most of the ethnic groups could join together, they were much more powerful than now. Uh, they still could not uh, achieve their goal in terms of uh, independence. Right now, uh, the Burmese government is much stronger than before. So I doubt if the Korean can achieve their goal. So far, every attempt to negotiate a peace deal has collapsed. The Burmese government wants the Karens to lay down their weapons first, something which is completely unacceptable to General Bomiya. Instead, his army remains as defiant as ever. Twenty-five-year-old Pagay, who joined the army as a teenager, told me it was his duty to defend the Karen people and that he was determined to defeat the Burmese military. Standing to attention, Pagay and his fellow soldiers sing the Karen national anthem. The Karen certainly remain a resolute force, but with the Burmese military considering a new dry season offensive, it may not be long before the rebels are forced to make a compromise or face final defeat. That report was from Enver Solomon in the usually inaccessible jungles of eastern Burma. And that's it from this edition of News Hour. This is Max Pearson in London. Until the next time, from all of us here, thanks for listening. Goodbye.